welcome back to another episode of What the HR, an award-winning podcast. I'm Jesse Novi. And I'm Mike Toole. The What the HR podcast explores how to build people-centric businesses through modern practices and approaches. New episodes are released frequently, so don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss any episodes. Welcome back to another episode of What the HR. Today, we are lucky enough to be joined by friend of the pod, Ben Granger. Ben joined us on episode 20 to talk about the importance of listening strategies and on episode 63 to talk about quiet quitting. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the Qualtrics 2024 Trends Overview, which um, I was incredibly excited about. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. But in case you missed episode 20 or 63, I'll just share with you a little bit about Ben. Um, Dr. Ben Granger is Chief Workplace Psychologist and Head of EX Advisory Services. He has over a decade of experience building experience management programs across the globe and leads EX, thought leadership, and research initiatives across Qualtrics and the XM Institute. So in this particular episode, um, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to talk about the 2024 trends overview. We'll obviously break these down further in the podcast episode, but to give you a little bit of a teaser, um, I'll run through each of the five trends with you. The first one being that employees would rather AI assist them than manage them. Trend two, frontline employees are the most unhappy, poorly supported, and least trusting. Trend three, the new job honeymoon phase has vanished. Trend four, employees open up work emails and chats to be fully heard but are more ambivalent about social media. And lastly, trend five, sometime in the office is better than none, unless it's five days. So these trends aren't necessarily in order of importance, um, so we don't necessarily go through them in this order, but we do break them down. Um, ben is able to give us some hypothesis around why um, these trends have landed where they have. The cool part about this trend report is it is not just Qualtrics data. Um, it is it is global data data. Um, and it's a rep- it's really representative of a global market. So something that everyone can can learn from and take take some nuggets away from, whether you are um, a small um, non-global organization to a large public global organization. So a big thanks to Ben again for being a friend of the pod and, and joining us and sharing his wisdom with us. If you are enjoying these podcast episodes, our topics, and our guests, please do us a huge favor. Head on over to your favorite podcast platform. Leave us both a rating and a review. Doing the combination of both of those things really helps to ensure that our podcast episodes are getting out to other HR leaders and HR and business leaders, um, honestly, and um, really helps to make sure that we can get our great guest guest topics um, out to others who could benefit from this information. So thanks for being a What the HR podcast listener and enjoy the episode. All right, Ben, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Always good to be with you both. Yeah, absolutely. I know you've been on. I know you've been on before. Um, but to any new listeners, if easy way of getting started, you want to kind of explain what you do and um, a little detail around maybe just your kind of background. Of course, 
So I'm an organizational psychologist by education, and I've been with Qualtrics for about eight years now. And at Qualtrics, we really are focused on helping organizations manage and measure the experiences that they create for their consumers and in the space that I play in for their employees, which we we know is a is a foundational piece to helping organizations run effectively. And so in my role as the chief workplace psychologist, I get involved in a lot of the research that we do around the employee experience. How are employees' expectations changing? What experiences do they want and they need? What's most important to them? And that's especially important as the external environment changes. So that's a little bit about what I do. And day to day, I get to play around with a lot of data. And I also work with a lot of our customers. Awesome. Appreciate that. So today, the reason we uh, wanted to have you back is Qualtrics just released this 2024 Employee Experience Trends Report. So we thought it would be interesting for our audience to hear a little bit about what went into that report and then also what came out of it. So can you just kind of start by explaining kind of maybe why you did the report, what sort of data did you grab, and then we'll get into what the results were. Sure. Every year for about the last five years or so, we've conducted an annual study of the employee experience. And every year the study has gotten bigger in terms of scope and sample size. But really what we aim to do in that annual study, we, by the way, we call it the employee experience trends research. And what we aim to do in that study is understand how our employee expectations and experiences changing in response to the external environment what's working from their perspective in their organizations, what's not working, how are things changing from year to year. So that's generally what we try to get out of that research. But that research, the the insights that we get from it, turn into recommendations that we bring to our customers as, as consultants and advisors, but also help to inform, are there solutions that are, are becoming are needed in organizations. So that's really the backdrop of the of the research. This year, we just released our report at the very end of October. So it's pretty fresh data. And this was the largest study of the global workforce that we have ever conducted at Qualtrics. We had right around, right under 37,000 full-time and part-time employees across the globe. 32 different countries were represented. Those countries were spread out across North America, South America, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, the Middle East, and parts of Asia, Australia, New Zealand. So it was a very, very representative sample of the global workforce. Mm-hmm. And so 28 in, uh, unique industries were covered. So again, this was the largest study we've ever conducted of the global workforce and something we're very, very proud of. But as you've alluded to, a lot of really interesting insights and and very excited to dive into some of those. Absolutely. Yeah. And I kind of want to dive right into that. And I think an easy place to start is generally speaking, what are some of the trends? And then we'll get into maybe some of the surprises and also like what, what was different from a year ago, maybe two years ago, and you know, what you're seeing in terms of what 2024 looks like and beyond. Yeah, the 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 happy to do those. And to start with the trends, I mean, we this year we distilled it down to five key trends from the research. These are not exhaustive. There's a lot more data in the actual report, 
and also in, in the data that we're still crunching uh, even beyond what's in the report. But from the research, when we were looking at a high level and asking ourselves, what are likely to be the most impactful trends that we saw in this research in regards to what we've seen change in the last year, what's salient to organizations, what's top of mind for them. The first was something we noticed around new hires and that the new hire experience isn't, isn't all that great from the new hire's perspective. We could talk a little bit about that as we unpack that finding, but that was really one we kind of called it the, where's the honeymoon phase going? The second trend is one around frontline workers. In a sense, we've seen the white collar employees, for lack of a better way to describe them, really get a lot of more flexibility since the pandemic in terms of when work gets done, where work gets done. But we're starting to see employees who at, at during the pandemic times we would call essential workers who have to be physically on site they're kind of wondering well what about me what about us what what's the how's the experience for us going to change and so that's been that's, that was the second key trend the third was around um basically how people are responding to hybrid and remote work arrangements and we can, we'll unpack that a little bit, but one of the things we found, and this was a consistent finding from the last year, is that there, there appears to be a sweet spot from the perspective of employees that hybrid seems to be the best for their overall working experience. There's some nuance there that we'll dig into. The fourth and the fifth trend are, are similar, but they kind of take a different uh, altitude. And they, the, the fourth and the fifth trend were around the fourth was really around passive listening, a mechanism for employee listening. And we really wanted to understand how are employees comfortable or uncomfortable with and what specifically are they comfortable around organizations using different approaches to employee listening? And the fifth, which everybody's talking about right now, some people are already tired of talking about it, is AI. <laughs> so what are what are employees comfortable with when it comes to the use of intelligent technologies in augmenting their work? So there's a lot within each of those, but when we zoom out and we look at those top five trends, those were the five that we really aligned on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think the easiest thing, like I wanna go through that list. I mean, obviously I, I think we could probably talk for a lot longer than we have, but I wanna go through and maybe on each, on each one as we go through them, um, some of the surprises, but also I'm curious on some of the rec and maybe you, your culture to your organization hasn't done this yet, but has, has there been any, have you released any guidance on, you know, what companies should be doing to counteract what you saw in this report? A little bit. We've, we've included some of those in the report itself for, okay. for line leaders, for HR, for senior leaders, um, but we are, as you pointed out, there's so much data in that that yeah. unpublished or that we're going to carry forward and publish in other pieces and will inform a lot of the practices. So it is a continuing effort. So there is a little bit of that in the report itself, but there's a lot more to come as we start to actually try some of those practices. Right. And we look at how they've they've um, they've worked or have it in actual organizations. Yeah. So let's start with, so the first one was new hire experience and, and you mentioned that it's, it's not great. So I'm, I'm curious what that means 
And uh, let's unpack that a little bit. Sure. This one takes a little bit of historical context because when we do this type of study, when we go into an organization and run an employee engagement survey, for example, which is a very common practice that we'll help organizations with, what, one of the things that we tend to do is we look, cut the data by different demographics. One of those different demographics has historically been tenure. How long have you been with the company? And what we have historically seen when we would go into an organization is what I would describe as a U-shaped relationship when it comes to job attitudes and tenure. And I'll try to explain that without a visual aid here on the podcast. But essentially, if you were to take a job attitude like employee engagement or really just about any attitude about the workplace and you'd plot that on the y-axis and then on the x-axis you look at tenure has been here less than six months has been here six year six months to a year one year to two years two to three and you keep going out what you would see is a u-shaped relationship meaning that people who are very early tenure who are new to the organization who have only been there for six months maybe a six months to a year we're pretty happy relative to others. And then when you get down to the middle 10 years, that's where you see a dip, where you see the experience dip until you get to very high 10 years, which also co-vary with pay, with level, with seniority, with age, all those other factors, you see the experience come up. So that's historically what we used to see when we would plot job attitudes by tenure. This year and last year, really, when we did this in the study, we noticed that instead of looking like a U-shaped relationship, it looked more like a hockey stick, meaning that new hires' attitudes relative to the past had dropped. And they weren't as happy that honeymoon phase, as we used to call it, you know, hey, it's new, the grass is greener here, it's going to be great. That sort of went away in the minds of the employees and the new hires in particular. And one finding that I thought was really striking is we were, you know, we saw engagement of people that were less than six months was significantly lower than everybody else. Well-being was lower. Inclusion was lower. But the intention to stay, that's an item we always ask in, in our annual study is, hey, how long do you intend to stay with the organization? New hire intent to stay, particularly people who have been with their company for less than six months, was dramatically lower than everyone else. It was 38% compared to 66%. So a huge difference wow. in the stay for new hires. And we don't exactly know why that has happened. The two primary hypotheses, and I want to be really clear, these are hypotheses that we have. One is the grass isn't greener uh, hypothesis. People, if you buy into the great resignation, people are leaving their jobs at a high rate. They join new roles. We anecdotally, we work with a lot of organizations in quick serve and manufacturing and, and shipping and distribution centers, call centers. And people literally were moving jobs for an extra 25 cents an hour raise. That was largely due to inflation and the fact that people could not keep their same pay and pay the bills the way they used to, even just mm -hmm. a year ago. And so because of that, people left their jobs, maybe for a little bit more pay, they get into the job. And as put very simply, and I thought poignantly by one of our customers in, in, in uh, Canada, this job just isn't what I thought it was going to be. 
That's one hypothesis. The second hypothesis that we also have data from a different research study is that organizations aren't doing a great job of threading the needle between the candidate experience and the new hire onboarding experience. Mm-hmm. And you can argue and you can make a good argument that now that more people are working in different working environments, you have some people in hybrid, you have some people fully remote, you have some people in the office. That's harder. It's harder to organize a consistent experience. That's a, I think that's a very real challenge for some companies. But we did see in some of our research of senior HR leaders that talent acquisition, getting butts in seats was far more of a priority than onboarding. And we wonder if that gap is partially responsible for what we're seeing here. In other words, candidates are coming with sky high expectations. They come into the workplace and they're like, this is not what I thought it was going to be. This is not what I was expecting. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Uh, Outside of the kind of those two hypotheses, when you guys put those. Well, okay, I guess kind of two questions outside of that. Do you have any other opinions on the matter? And then also. The second part of that is, what do you do moving forward to test those hypotheses? Well, I think what, for one, the the hypotheses that we have, especially the second one about whether the candidate and the onboarding experience are, are disjointed, mm-hmm. whether that's the primary cause of this or predictor of this is almost doesn't matter because that needs to get sorted out anyway. (laughs) It's amazing to me, really, how many times I'll talk to a prospective customer uh, and we'll look at, hey, does talent acquisition, who's responsible for that? Usually people have a pretty clear answer. It's the talent acquisition team or whatever term they call it. Yeah, they're, they're responsible for designing it. In a lot of cases, they're responsible for executing on the experience. And maybe they have some partners to help them with the validation, the system integration and things like that. But for, for the most part, that that functions pretty well defined. Now, you go into any organization, and you ask, who's responsible for onboarding? You're going to get questions all over the place. And there's usually not a quote unquote onboarding team. There might be for a certain persona of a very high volume position like call center agents, for example. But oftentimes those people who are responsible for that experience are responsible for 20 different other things. (laughs) And also you run into issues of, is it the talent acquisition team who's teeing up the expectations going into this? Are those people talking? Is the hiring manager responsible for new hire onboarding? What about the call center director of a call center or the retail director or whoever it is uh, in a leader in, in that center? So the point here is in a lot of organizations that we talk to on a regular basis, there's a very disjointed experience to the point where those people don't really even know who, who each other are. They don't interact regularly. And that's a huge miss. So again, it almost, even if that's not the primary reason, I fundamentally believe organizations would improve by weaving a common thread between those two experiences. And the last point I'll make on that, and this is not our own research, but rather some academic research that we've been drawing upon, is that about the first two months in the role is akin to the first impression that a person forms about 
the workplace. If you're going to capture and if you if you know human nature, if you know yourself, first impressions happen like the snap of a finger. We create first impressions based on nonverbal behaviors that we'll see in somebody when we're meeting for the first time. And we create a snap judgment about that person. Good or bad, that's human nature. Humans do the same thing when they go into a group of people, which would be like joining a new job. Okay, one question I'm going to ask is, what, if what I heard, is that playing out with what I'm experiencing? And if there's inconsistency there, I might form an impression that I don't know if I can trust these folks. I don't know if I can trust this place if I'm seeing so much mismatch. That is then, once that's solidified as to what it's going to be like to work here, it's extremely difficult to change that. It's extremely difficult to change somebody's first impression. It can be done, but it's hard, and it can be very expensive at scale. So the point, a long-winded way of coming to this point, it is absolutely critical that organizations understand what their expectations are setting for the candidate in the new hire experience, and then are paying that off. And it starts with those people need to know who each other are, and they need to at least start talking with each other. Yeah, <clears throat> I love your hypothesis. And I know we have four more trends that we need to cover. So we have to have some brevity here so we can cover all of this great content. But a couple other things that were um, scrolling through my head as you were talking about those two hypotheses were pay transparency, because in the last couple of years, you know, pay transparency laws have I mean, come such such a long way, and you know, employers are taking very different stances on how they're how they're dealing with it. You know, some are taking the peanut butter spread approach, stating we operate in so many of these states, so we're just going to do pay transparency across our entire organization. Some are like, ah, that's I'm scared, that makes me nervous. I'm just going to tip, you know, deal with the states where we have to at this particular juncture. But whether what whatever way you slice it or dice it. Companies like Indeed, for example, and I maybe even LinkedIn, I know Indeed for sure, is requiring you to post your salary ranges for all of your jobs. And if you aren't posting it, Indeed will make a recommendation based on their analysis on how much the salary range for the job is for. So I just think it creates this whole new experience from a recruitment perspective, and it really puts a lot of power in the hands of the applicant um, than the, the, the client or the company as it did in, in previous years. So I think that's that's an interesting topic, you know, surrounding this particular trend. And then the other thing that was crossing my mind was just job loyalty. You know, the, the market's been hit a lot in the last, you know, 12 to 18 months. Some companies were experiencing a lot of layoffs, especially a very tenured employees and some of the companies that I've worked with. Um, so just this wondering if there's this feeling too of like, I don't owe you anything. You, you know, you don't treat me with any loyalty in return. So if this isn't a good experience for me, I, I don't feel like I need to stay around very long. I'm going to explore other opportunities. Those are great points, Jesse. And quickly, the I, I love the pay transparency piece. Primarily, I'm a big fan of fail fast. Let's get over that hurdle. Let's get over it quick. And then we can move on to those things that will actually emotionally connect you to the job, which we know are more important for retention. Love that point. And then that that second point about 
maybe not feeling that same degree of loyalty. We have seen some evidence for that in our own research that um, we did a study of tech workers, for example, fairly recently, and we were seeing signs that um, employees are feeling less loyalty to the tech industry into their organization. And I think the the quickly, I think that is one of the dangers of organizations utilizing the leverage that they have in a tight job market. And you tend to see that, right? Back a couple of years ago, you would hear Josh Burson say things like, hey, the ta- the war for talent's over and talent won. Well, that will wax and wane over time. It's going to go back and forth. And what we tend to see is some organizations will utilize that leverage and some do the opposite. But that's what happens when when you see a, sort of an escalation on one side, the other side escalates. That's that's kind of human nature. And frankly, it's not very productive in my view. So before we move on to the next one, I just have one more question. Uh, it, it's not completely related to the new hire experience, but in general with that report, because this is showing trends. So there are going to be outliers, I imagine, within that report. Do you guys follow up on those outliers? Is there a separate outlier report that you look at and say, okay, these companies don't fit that mold and then maybe find out why? Mm, That's an interesting question, Michael. Um, No, we don't break it down by company. So the, the, we are really researching at the individual employee level and we're not, Um, we're not aggregating those results to a company. But I think that raises a really important point that we do collect a lot of data organically from customers that we work with because we power mm-hmm. a lot of employee listening efforts. Um, but I think it is important. A lot of times when, when I talk about this research, people might, and not not saying this is what you're saying, Michael, but sometimes people say, oh, well, this is just Qualtrics' customers. In this study, this is not just Qualtrics' customers. This is not organically collected um, data. This is really, we're going out to a very, very broad representative sample of the global workforce and asking from their individual perspective. So unfortunately, the answer, I think, to your question is no, we don't go company by company. However, when we do go into uh, individual client organization, we say, hey, these might be some external trends to be concerned about. Is this playing out internally? We'll test whether that's, we're seeing the same trend mm-hmm. internally, and then we'll respond to it and we'll look at the effectiveness of that response. Yeah. I'm glad you pointed out that it's not just Qualtrics customers because I think that makes the results just that much more credible. And also, because I think about those that are using Qualtrics have probably put an emphasis at some point on employee listening and their culture. That's exactly not, right. Not yet, right. Not to say that other other companies who don't do it, like don't care, but if it was just a report with that, it may lead to some different it, results. It was, that's right on. And, and I think that's the biggest, I think when people do bring that up and they say, oh, is that just your, your customers. That's exactly right. There's a self-selection bias. And Mm -hmm. if we were just using our own data, there would be a massive self-selection bias in that data, and it would not be representative of the global workforce. Yes. Very cool. All right. So moving on. So the next one was about frontline workers. uh, And and you talked a little bit about flexibility on, on the white collar side. And now we're kind of getting to that point, which 
you know, uh, maybe on the you know blue collar side of work is kind of what about us? I think just how you kind of phrased it. Can you talk a little more about that, that second trend? Sure. Well, the first one with the new hires, I would say, was a bit of a that was new. That was sort of a new trend that we've noticed over the last two years really popped in the report this year. The study or the or the finding around the frontline customer facing employees being lower on most of the job attitudes compared to other groups of employees. Sadly, that's not abnormal. That's pretty normal for what we see. But I think that should all raise the question for us in HR, should that be? And I've been saying this a lot in the talks that I've done or conversations I'm having with customers. These are the these frontline customer facing employees are what we were calling the essential workers during the COVID days. And has that really ever changed? Are they have they ever not been the essential workers? And I think I think the answer is no, they're always the essential workers. And we should still think of them as that way. But to get more to the point in the findings, when we were looking at the experience of the frontline worker, what we noticed is that they were significantly, not just statistically, but very practically significantly lower in things like their perception of their pay, their career development opportunities, the recognition they get in their job, the work processes that they use on a daily basis, their ability to adapt to change, their psychological safety, and their trust in leadership. All of those things, very foundational attitudes about work were significantly lower than the rest of the work, the, the different categories of people we, we studied. What I found so fascinating about that is the list of those things that the frontline customer facing employees were the lowest on also tend to be the attitudes that predict customer experience. And so this explain this requires a little bit of an explanation. So a lot of the work we do is not just collecting data on employees from our customers, but we also do a lot of work to link employee attitudes, employee behaviors, and HR processes with what levers can an organization pull on the employee side that has the biggest downstream impact on things like customer satisfaction, customer advocacy, customer churn, customer repurchase. And we know that those things have a direct link to revenue and profitability. And so we've been doing a lot of that linkage work. And when we first went into to a lot of that work a few years ago, I have to admit, I was hypothesizing that it would be how employees feel about the customer focus of the culture, right? Are we a customer focused culture? Then that's going to predict customer outcomes. But what we really started to find when we go from company to company doing these linkage studies is that it oftentimes was really foundational stuff. It was, hey, day to day, I'm using this system to help me answer customer questions and the systems don't work or they don't yeah. work like I'm supposed to. Or I don't feel like I'm recognized when I deliver a great experience, nothing happens. There's no social recognition. There's no financial recognition, nothing. Or they might feel like they, they do or don't feel safe talking about mental health. We did one really fascinating study with an airline. And what we found was one of the biggest predictors of whether call center agents in that airline 
or driving a better customer experience as rated by the customer was whether the employees felt like they could openly talk about mental health with their manager. So the foundational stuff, the same foundational factors that we saw frontline customer facing workers lower than everybody else on are oftentimes the same things that drive customer satisfaction and customer behavior. Wow. This is a really interesting topic for me because I've been thinking this for a while now. It seems like for the longest time, and I hope this applies to what you said, I didn't misinterpret, but for the longest time, it's all... It's always been invest in like new customer acquisition. It's all about bringing in new customers, new customers. And I feel like now, especially like in the software world, but now it seems that there are so many competitors out there in, in all spaces and it, it's they're all good solutions. So really that customer satisfaction, that customer advocacy seems to be what's now bringing the best companies up to the top. And so based on kind of what you said, I'm, I'm curious if companies traditionally looked at investing in customer service as more of a cost center, even though like you mentioned, it is a revenue generator, but are companies catching up with that statement? Have you seen them catching up? Because to me, it's, 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 to me, it's shifting, becoming even more of a priority than it ever has been because, because of the the competition in the markets and everything kind of looks the Mm -hmm. same and feels the same. And so, like, what have you seen in working with maybe customers, the ones that are investing heavily in their customer support, um, their customer, I guess, satisfaction, but also the success of their customers? Great question. There's a lot of variance from company to company. Some organizations are view this as a cost. They view it as um a commodity, so to speak, an internal commodity. They they view it as ah, well, we can we can just turn, you know, we can we we know the, you know, sometimes we call that gearing ratios or whatever it might be, but we know how many people we can get in. We have the machine working. We if if we lose those people, we can get them in. We don't. It's not that important. You're still seeing that, but you also are seeing the extreme other end, companies who are coming to an awareness that especially if the experiences that they are creating, right? If they are making, basically, if they're making their money, if they're in the business of delivering experiences, which is hard to imagine an industry that's not, but if they're in a direct consumer B2C environment and their products that they're designing or putting out into the market or they're directly delivering services, they're becoming very aware that when there is that variance with some investing and some not, that's an opportunity. That's an opportunity to differentiate yourself. I would go further and say that a lot of the B2C interactions are becoming more transactional in nature. They're becoming more digital. And that's evidence just in our consumer behavior day to day, right? When we used to do Christmas shopping five years ago, because right now my wife and I are very in the middle of Christmas shopping, right? It was very much, we go to the physical store, we interact with the people, we go, Black Friday was a big thing, we go, you know, stay out late and go to the stores when they open, and we don't do that anymore. Now, I'm speaking for us, right? People still do that, but now it's, now we're online, (laughs) now we're going Mm -hmm. to the locations online, and we're looking at the Black Friday deals that are already starting, by the way. So the more and more the experiences become t- transactional and digital, 
those rare occurrences where you're actually interacting with someone in person or virtually become more important. That becomes a heightened, uh, the importance of that experience become heightened because it's rarer. And that's general human nature. Rare experiences are worth more. So if you buy into that, if you buy that logic, that your opportunities to create a positive emotion, emotional experience that's largely driven by human-to-human interaction, those are becoming increasingly important. We are seeing the sub-segment, and this is largely, this goes back to that self-selection bias. The customers that we work with are very much in that camp. They do believe this is important and they are investing in these frontline workers to make sure that when they have that interaction with the customer, even though it's maybe rarer than it used to be, it's got to be good. It's got to be critical. And that starts with taking care of your employees. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my my daughter's Christmas list is now an app and it it sends it to me and it actually has the link to the website where I can buy the gift on there. So to, I, I totally understand what you're saying there. And I think about the the experiences when I think about and, and I was speaking more like I'm more in the B2B world. So, you know, it's, it's obviously a different world. But when you think about the rare experiences that you mentioned, oftentimes when you do have to interact with somebody outside of the digital world, it's because maybe something's gone wrong. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, like what you've seen in terms of proactive outreach to customers, what are good companies doing that you know, they're proactively reaching out. So it's not every interaction I'm having necessarily is because something is broken, more about kind of building the relationship. And I would think if you push proactive outreach, you're going to have better experiences with those customers. Because, you know, if every day it's all about kind of reactive, it's probably not the best conversation all the time if somebody's unhappy with something. That's a great point, especially in a B2B environment where you have kind of an ongoing relationship and, Mm -hmm. you know, the work we do to connect the employee data and customer data in the B2B environment is actually quite different than what I've been describing, which has been very B2C focused. But yeah, you're, you're exactly right. In those types of environments, we've seen the proactivity on the part of the, you know, let's say the vendor um, or, or the account manager, that level of proactivity that used to be a nice to have that used to be like wow this is great right eventually that's going to become it has to be the norm because all the other stuff gets taken care of by the technology and so it's the proactivity it's the prescription that you get from the other human that's going to build the trust and the consistency moving forward Mm -hmm. so the the next thing so i'm number three uh, and, and I'm guessing these aren't these aren't in, in particular order. These are just the five top trends, not you know, ranked from one to what five. Okay. Um, so number three, we talked about how people are responding to the hybrid, um, hybrid work life, and I think you mentioned kind of flexible work arrangements seem to be uh, a good indicator of happiness. Correct me if I'm wrong there, but talk more about that aspect of the report. Sure. This was also a finding that carried over from last year's trend study, which we were able to look at how job attitudes change based on how many days you spend in the office and are are remote. Same same way of looking at it. But essentially, we could plot job attitudes on the y-axis by I work from the office zero days a week, one day a week, two, three, four, five. And so we were able to look at what that relationship looks like and almost the exact opposite relationship that we saw with the new hires, right? When we plot that relationship, this one looks like an inverted U 
meaning that people who work remotely all the time and people who work five days a week in the office reported the lowest job attitudes overall. And it was sort of the middle where people were spending some time in the office and also some time remotely were tended to be the happiest. This this finding, I think, is the most dangerous in terms of people running off with this, like, oh, hybrid's the best. That is not the conclusion we drew from this. And I want to be really clear about that. This does not mean that hybrid is the best model for all reasons for all companies, because that is just not true. I just do not believe that's true. What this does suggest is there is employees today who are working in these various models do appreciate the balance that hybrid offers. And I'll be specific about the balance. And then I'll go kind of fund, fundamental foundational human needs here. There's absolutely have been an increase in employee expectations around workplace flexibility. There's no question about that. And we saw that draw, driven from the pandemic. That hasn't gone away. But workplace flexibility, you know, where work gets done is a big factor there. But we have prior research that we've done on how employees define flexibility and when work gets done was actually prioritized over where, which is really important. So this is to point out that this this finding should not be looked at in a vacuum, right? You have to zoom out a little bit and look at the issue of workplace flexibility. But back to the point, employees are demanding more flexibility where work gets done, when work gets done, how work gets done. Then the other piece that we know is a universal human need is the need to affiliate, to be social. Human beings are social. And the you, you can be social virtually. We've, we have research that suggests that people can make friends virtually just in the workplace almost as easily as they do you know, in person. But we also know that in, in times where the economies tighten, where people are working toward efficiency, that essentially means organizations are trying to coordinate the usage of shared resources more effectively. How do we get myself and Michael and Jesse to work effectively together? And a great way to do that and collaborate is to get us together physically. There's, there's you know, right now there's not really a replacement for that. The, the value that you get, the reading of the nonverbal, the nonverbal cues, the sharing of that information happens really effectively in person. And so what I what I interpret from this finding is it's it's showing that there's a real benefit to employees. Employees acknowledge the value of having the ability to do a little bit of both. They can have some flexibility and say so over, hey, sometimes I need to do focus work. And for some of us, it's easier for me, for example, it's much easier for me to get focus work done at home. But that's because I have home office. If I was living in New York or San Francisco or L.A. or Toronto and I had three roommates and it would, might be easier for me to get focus work done at the office. And so we have to appreciate the fact that there's going to be individual differences here. But that need to focus is universal. That's that's essential for people to get in a flow state and get focus work done. And on the flip side, that ability to coordinate with each other, to share information, to knowledge transfer, to build a shared mental model so that we can work on something together effectively, coordinate our resources, sometimes that's better done in person. And mm -hmm. so 
that's how I interpret this finding is that there's a lot of benefit here and how an organization takes this and runs with it will differ from company to company. Yeah, the knowledge transfer piece that you mentioned, uh, I'm glad you said that because that was my question that I had written down is, you know, have, and I don't know if this was part of the study, but I'm, I'm curious if you've seen kind of the knowledge gap increase as we've m- pushed more towards this hybrid, because I, I think about it, it's not only a knowledge gap, but it's also maybe an increase in frustration around how long it takes to get answers when you're not all in the office. I know that I personally, I've seen that where it's like you're, you're around each other. You got, you know, 20 people in the office and you can find that answer in five minutes by just bouncing off of people. And now it's, it's email. People are spread out different time zones, whatever it may be. Um, I've, I've seen that. I know in my work life, I'm curious if, if you've seen that in, in this report or just generally speaking, if you're seeing a Longer time to find answers, I guess, would be the easiest way of putting it. The, we have seen some evidence for that. And we've, in, in our research, but also anecdotally in speaking with HR professionals, I would, maybe I'll take this in a slightly different direction, kind of go to mm-hmm. why that might be happening. And it's often said that a, a much higher percentage of things that get communicated between humans get communicated non-verbally. They get communicated by the unconscious cues, the facial expressions, the body language. And it's often said, right, that more gets communicated non-verbally than verbally. And I think most people agree with that. People who, when they hear that, when they understand where that comes from, but we don't we don't often act on that. <laughs> we often assume, oh, well, I said that. I told the person that. I sent them an email or I, 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 I mentioned that in a call. Why didn't they understand it? Why didn't it sink in? Mm-hmm. I would argue there's a lot of that happening right now. And it really shouldn't be surprising. To take us back into history, right? Mankind has communicated nonverbally for millions of years. We only started using language about 100 or 200,000 years ago. So we're relatively inexperienced, you know, in a cosmic scale, relatively inexperienced communicating verbally. And so it is not surprising to me as a psychologist at all that it is harder for us to communicate and get that knowledge transfer when we are in different models. That, I think, is an opportunity for technology to bring those the maybe the the communication of those nonverbal cues or the ability for us to to use a video conference like this so where we can make our upper bodies visible and we can use those same we can pick up on those same cues so these are all tools i think technology will help us to get to that point but i do think there is something to what you said michael i think as we're working in different working environments it is harder for some people. And, and what they're comparing it to is how easy it was back in the day. And now it's harder and I don't like it. And so we have to respect. Yeah, no, 100%. And I think about a good example of that is you, you do a presentation on Zoom and, and I hear this all the time and I don't know about both of you, but you know, I'll take silence as everybody understands, right? And rarely does everybody understand, whereas when you're in a room full of people and, and everybody's kind of quiet and, you know, they're kind of looking at each other, like you, you just kind of know, OK, this isn't this isn't sinking in the way that I expected to. So that's a um, great example, Michael. I, that's a really good example. 
Um, so, all right. Well, I know, I know we're, we don't have a ton of time. Jess, anything else on that? Otherwise I want to kind of jump in to make sure we hit the last two. You can go ahead and move to the last two trends. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, let's see. So the, the fourth one, we talked about the passive listening, Ben. Talked a little bit more about that one. Let's, let's dive in there. Sure. So, and I think the 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 final two are pretty related to each other in a way. The passive listening finding, we were really interested here, and we've seen organizations. Obviously, the organizations we work with, and most companies around the globe, are doing some form of employee listening. And most of the time, at least historically, and even to this day, the majority of the intentional listening that's done is via surveys. Surveys are what I would describe as organizationally driven listening. The company is designing the questionnaire. They're they're teeing up and saying, hey, employees, let's have this conversation about X, Y, Z. Um, and usually it's about their experience. But passive listening is quite different, and it is more employee-driven conversations. And this would be, and this is very different from productivity monitoring, by the way, but this is more when employees are interacting with each other, when they're on a webcast and they're commenting, when they're emailing each other for work purposes, when they're on Slack or Gchat or whatever it is, whatever they use to communicate, can we scrape those channels confidentially, right? We're not identifying what Jesse said or what Michael said, but in the aggregate, what are people talking about? What are they concerned about? What's their sentiment around those topics? Are they talking about pay? Are they talking about collaboration? Are they talking about those frustrations that you were talking about, Michael, just a minute ago, how I can't get answers and why? So then using that, quantifying that information and using that as a source of employee listening data. But that's relatively new for some companies. We have plenty of clients using passive listening today. But compared to surveys, it's relatively new. And so what we wanted to understand in this study was if we were from the employee's perspective, what type of channels would they be comfortable with their company or their employer scraping for these purposes uh, and, and specifically to help improve their experience? And what we found from this was that when we listed out things like, hey, your work email or a work system that you use to interact with someone for work purposes on a work computer or work device, people were relatively comfortable with their company using that as a source of information. But once you started to get to the personal things like social media, um, even anonymous social media, sites like Blind or Reddit, they were far less comfortable with those channels. So the more personal I got, the more or the more non-work related I got, the more uncomfortable people generally were. The other factor that made a big difference here was whether employees were engaged or not. And so employees who reported being highly engaged were generally significantly more comfortable with just about all channels. But disengaged employees were pretty uncomfortable with it. And just to give you some stats to make that paint that picture. When you look at email, you know, hey, global employee, how comfortable would you be with your company scraping email as a source of employee data? 80% of engaged employees, well, engaged employees, 
said 80% of those people were, were comfortable with it compared to 62% of disengaged employees. When you go down to anonymous social media, 53% of engaged employees would be comfortable with that, but only 32% of disengaged employees would be comfortable yeah. with that. I can see, I mean, to me, that kind of makes sense just like right off the bat because people are always worried, like, don't, you know, don't get me in trouble. Don't find something you don't want me to see. When, to your point, it's kind of anonymous. I want to dive into this a little bit more because it's really interesting. So when we talk about scraping data, like, can you talk a little bit about or give some examples of what sort of data are they scraping? What are, like, what are, what answers are they looking for? Is it, hey, this, this issue took 35 emails to accomplish? you know, what you need to accomplish. And so we look at that, or is it like sentiments in the emails? It's a little bit of all of it. It's it's really what it's all designed to, passive listening is always designed for what are people organically talking about? Mm-hmm. How can we improve those experiences? So what's going well? What are people talking about? What's the sentiment around what they're talking about? You know, so it's the topic, it's the sentiment, it's the intention. What do they plan to do in response to it? All of those types of things can actually be pretty easily extracted from lots and lots of text data using, you know, natural language understanding, natural language processing, and even large language models. Okay. So my mind kind of goes to like a Microsoft Teams, you know, all the chat that goes on there. Would that be, that would be an area you think that potentially would be scraped? That that's that's precisely the type of thing we were asking about in this study is like, you know, imagine your company was scraping all that chat and using it as a source of information about what to improve. Are you comfortable with that or not? So that's a perfect example. Hmm. Yeah, that's that is interesting. I, I I mean, that to me, it's it's interesting for this topic, but also moving forward like everything in our life when it comes to AI, the amount of information that it's going to be able to gather. And hopefully it's used for the right things. You hope companies are are using that data for the right things, but obviously people will be concerned that it's used for the wrong issues. Um, okay, so is did that encompass the, the final trend? It's very similar. I'll cover that one very quickly, but we when we did some earlier research this summer on the use of generative ai in the workplace what we found we we were we were interested in the differences between how executives think about ai in the workplace and how frontline employees think about ai in the workplace perhaps not surprisingly very different attitudes <laughs> so executives tended to be very optimistic about it uh, about two-thirds of them described ai in the workplace as exciting only about a third of frontline employees agreed that it was exciting. They were more likely to describe it as scary. And specifically, they called out things like potential job loss, people losing their critical thinking skills, being too reliant on the AI, for example. And very interestingly, the workplace losing its humanity were where some of the frontline employees were calling out. So anyway, we knew already with some research that executives were a little bit more excited about AI in the workplace than frontline employees. They were a little bit more on their guard. And so again, in this study, very similar to the passive listening, we wanted to understand specifically what are employees comfortable with or uncomfortable with when it comes to using AI in their jobs. And so when it came to things like a writing task, 
61%. Can Would you use AI? Are you comfortable using AI with a writing test? 61% of global employees said, yeah, I'd be comfortable with that. 51% were okay with it using it as a personal assistant. So a slight majority of people are coming around to this idea of using it to augment their work. But then when you get to the personal high stake stuff, a performance appraisal, a job interview, how do you feel about AI use being, being used in these types of very personal things? Far lower uh, comfortability mm-hmm. there. 37% of people were comfortable with the performance appraisal, only 29% comfortable with job interview. Now, there was a really fascinating distinction here. Well, before I get to that, same finding around engagement and disengagement. Engaged employees were far more comfortable with the use of AI to augment everything, but were still relatively less comfortable with it in personal job impacting decisions than disengaged employees. So there was that same, about the same degree of difference between engaged and disengaged employees. But to me, the most fascinating finding here was that People who def- who identify as having disabilities or identify as being trans non-binary were significantly more comfortable using AI for performance appraisals and job interviews, presumably mm. because it, from their perspective, it might actually e- even the playing field for them and right. help overcome maybe some of the biases that they experience or have experiences in their um, in their lives, their work lives. The overall takeaway for me by these two findings, these two final trends was employees are looking at these two novel introductions of technology into the workplace from a very personal lens. How is this going to impact me? Right. So to me, the big takeaway there is as organizations look to introduce these intelligent technologies and these new approaches, they have to appreciate the fact that these are new to people. They might not be new to the executives, but they might be new to people. And you have to acknowledge the fact that that's going to come with some degree of uncomfortability. And you have to communicate a what's in it for you, not just what's in it for the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the AI topic is is very interesting. And and I look forward to discussing it more on, on the podcast. Um, but I, I like those findings because if you look at it from a leadership perspective, it's almost like, hey, of course we're interested in efficiencies. And then it sounds like what you said is frontline workers may be like, yeah, but like, there's more to me than just you know what I do. Yeah, and what does efficiency mean? Does this mean right. that I'm uh, the machine's more efficient than me? Does this mean I'm gone? That's the kind of stuff that would swirl. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and when it comes to the performance reviews, like it, it almost confirms some bias and some like the way you said that is like, right, it's well, yeah, Ben, Ben's, you know, slacks here, but, you know, what a great guy and we get along really well. You know, I love everything about him, but, the you know, that may impact. I mean, it to me, the stats that you received there kind of validate maybe some of some of that. Um, yeah, such interesting stuff. Is there anything else, Ben, before we I, I want to tell everybody kind of where they can access the report and then uh, let you tell everybody where they can follow you as well. But is there anything else that you found super interesting about this report? I'm sure there's a ton of it, but anything that stands out that you want to point out? I, th- I think the to me, when I summarize it all, I just think of balance. I think I think balance was the key in just about all these findings is balancing the message, the the needs of the collective, the company, the needs of the individual, balancing the need for flexibility, the emerging need for flexibility, and also collaboration, 
um, balancing what you're investing for your um, maybe professional corporate jobs and your frontline jobs and balance between the candidate and the onboarding experience. So to mm -hmm. me, that that notion of balance rings true in just about every single one of the findings. And I think is a very important principle to reflect on, especially for those of us in HR. Yeah. And the, the last thing really quick, I know we got to jump, but when I know for me, I see a report like this. Sometimes it's it's overwhelming, right? Like, okay, I, I can't read this thing front to back. But like, how would you recommend somebody when they download it? Like, how do you recommend they interact with this report? That's a great question. I, I think we we always aim to make it make it very digestible where you can move mm -hmm. from the trend. There's the little bit about the finding and then a little bit about what to do about it. I think it's it's easy enough to kind of do it once through, but the way I use it even, in, and I was part of the research, but I use it as, I, I kind of always have it open on my side. And oftentimes I want to go back to a certain section. I need a right. refresher on that frontline worker doing some work with some customers. And you can go back into it modularly going just focusing on one trend at a time. So that, that and I'm speaking for myself personally, I like to give it a once over and then use it as a reference where I can go back and forth into it from time to time. Yeah, awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Ben. Can you tell everybody how they can connect with you and also where they can find the report? Yeah, of course. Uh, Benjamin Granger on LinkedIn is the best way to get in uh, touch with me professionally. Um, very active there. Uh, also happy if you have direct questions, you just send me a DM there. Uh, happy to answer those. And the report is easily available. You can look up the uh, Qualtrics 2024 EX Trends Report. If you Google that, you'll find um, a link to download that for free. We'll ask for a little bit of your information, and you can download that report for completely free, whether you're our customer or not. And we hope, really, the intention there is that it'll resonate with people. The, it'll validate maybe some of the things that they're challenged with or perhaps may help to tell them what might be happening and what do you right. need to look forward to and how can you get ahead of these issues before they become a big problem in your organization? Yeah. Well, Ben, again, thank you. It's always a pleasure having you on. This has been very interesting and I look forward to digging into that report more. So again, thank you and, and the work that your team has done and we'll chat with you soon. Well, we appreciate you both. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of What the HR. If you want to hear more episodes like this, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever platform you're listening through now. If you enjoyed the podcast, do us a favor and share with your network, your boss, or your CEO. Help us get this podcast in front of anyone who wants to know what HR looks like when done well. Also, if you have any questions for show topics or people you'd like us to interview, please email Mike and I at podcast at tcsherm.org. That's podcast at tcsherm.org. If you want to find out more about Twin City Sherm or our upcoming events, please visit our website at tcsherm.org. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And finally, if you're not already a member of Twin City Sherm, please use code WHATTHR at checkout to receive $20 off your membership. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.